0: You know, there's a book in the Bible in which God is never mentioned by name, not even once. Some of you guys probably know it. It is the book of Esther. Very good, right? And so we say, how can a book like that be in the Bible? A book that never mentions, never utters the name God or Lord or anything like that. How can that book be in the Bible if it doesn't say anything about him? Well, I never said it didn't say anything about God. It just never mentions his name. Silence, it can be deafening, but the omission of any mention of God actually makes the reader even more conscious of his presence. It's kind of like the time in your life where, when you felt that God was absent. Can you recall a moment? When you felt that God was absent, perhaps you needed a miracle and there was no miracle. You cried out to God and, and there was nothing. So you felt that season of your life was just a chapter without God. No mentioning, no utterance of the Lord, but looking back now, at that difficult time, I'm sure you're now able to see how God was beautifully orchestrating the events to lead you to, that led you to know him. I say all that because our text today is like the book of Esther in that regard. God is never mentioned here. But while the story seems to be about Jacob and about Uncle Laban and about his two daughters, Rachel and Leah, I believe that you'll begin to see that the story is really about this invisible player even though his name is never once uttered. His name is God. So our first point for today is this. Thank God he is in control despite our foolishness. Amen? Thank God God is in control despite yours and my foolishness. Now I have in my car a pretty interesting button. A button I never had before in any of my previous vehicles. It's a driver's assistance button. I think a lot of new cars are coming out with it ultimately it has this technology. It has a bunch of cameras that are set up around your car and it essentially monitors everything, the way you drive and, and where you're driving and all that stuff and the condition in which you're driving in. Now when I'm driving and I begin to veer off lane, you know, without trying to be intentional about it, in other words, without signaling, an alarm, a little buzzer will sound. Then, while flashing a, and all, the, all, the, all the while flashing a warning on my dashboard. But not only that, The entire steering wheel will shake as if I were asleep at the wheel. But what's even cooler is that I can actually take my hands off the wheel, and the car will drive within the lane by itself, and it will turn the wheel by itself. I'm not kidding, right? And it will do that for about maybe half a mile or or more, and after that, it will probably think that you're dead or do something else and call 911, but... It will just—it will actually steer itself. So you can just on the highway. Can't do local roads where there's stop signs and children walking across. Um, So if you ever want a poor man's Tesla, get a Honda Pilot. (laughs) Why are these cars becoming automated, or dare I say, self-aware? Because most accidents occur on the road. That occur on the road are caused by what? Human error. Turn to turn to your friend or person next to you and say, "You're the problem." We're like the ones that think that we can squeeze by those two 18-wheelers. We think we can make the light even though it's been red already for a few seconds. We think that we can take a Pittsburgh left even though there's oncoming traffic, right? We think we can do all that. You see, we as humans, we don't really make the best decisions on the road, do we? So car manufacturers are looking to safeguard our race. Now, spiritually speaking, it's as if we're also driving. Some do it better than others, but for the most part, we've had a ticket or two or three. We've all nicked our bumper or our license plate. We all need help. We're not that great a driver. And so our only hope is for the sovereign God to override man's foolishness and for God to manually work out his plan through our lives. And so it's this overriding providence is what we see God doing in Jacob's life. Because he's thinking, Jacob, you fool. And quite frankly, that's kind of what he may be saying about us too. David, really? Again? You're making that mistake again? You foolish boy. So this is God overriding that and working in my life. And I want to look at Jacob's biggest foolishness for a second here. He had passion, but he had no prayer. Passion, but without prayer. Okay, so as we read this section... We can't help but remember the very similar account back in Genesis chapter 24. Remember how Abraham's servant went to the same destination, to the home where Laban lived, and his purpose of the journey was the same, to find a wife. Back then, it was to find a wife for Isaac. This time, Jacob was in search for a wife. So just as in the previous account, Jacob, the traveler, he traveled to a well. And this well was where the sheep were watered. And here's another similarity that occurs there too. There was a beautiful person there immersed. A beautiful, bride to be unsuspecting shepherdess was found. And so there's a lot of similarities here. But there's also this pretty big difference. So here we go. Back then in chapter 24, Abraham's servant had bathed his search in prayer. Bathed his search in prayer. As he was looking for a wife for Abraham's son, Isaac, this guy, this servant, was praying. He was praying constantly. He prayed as he arrived at the well that God would send the right girl. He prayed as he watched her water his camels. He prayed when he found out who she was. He prayed in Thanksgiving when he was invited to her father's house. And he prayed when they finally agreed to give her hand in marriage to Isaac. You see, from start to finish, this sermon was praying and he asked God about everything and he trusted God to work out his plan. Can not hear an amen. He prayed from start to finish. But Jacob's experience was quite different. There's no record that Jacob ever asked God about anything of this matter. There is no evidence to support that he prayed even at all. Instead, he depended on his feelings. On his feelings. The moment he saw Rachel, it was love at first sight. Or I would say, maybe more realistically, it was lust at first sight. So, folks, hear me out. Beauty is only skin deep. Can I hear an amen? We've all heard that before. It's not wrong to want someone whom you're attracted to. In fact, you should probably want to be with someone you're attracted to. Turn to your neighbor and say, You're good looking, but it's not forever. Someone said, You'll be beautiful. You'll be, one day, one day you'll be beautiful. I'm not saying to go into relationships blindly, but when you base your future relationship and marriage on things that are purely superficial, you'll be in for a rude awakening. Now, courtship. Courtship is something that has been talked about a lot these days. Courtship and dating are different. Courtship says, I'm intentional about this. And I see you as someone who I hope to one day get married to. Dating says this is really unintentional. Hey, let's give it a shot. Maybe you might be marriage material or not. But either way, I'll date you until someone better comes along. Or maybe we'll just settle on each other. But regardless, I'll keep my eyes peeled. If you think I'm joking, I have met with so many people who have, as I call it, shelved. Shelved their girls, their girlfriend or boyfriend. They shelved them. There's no real commitment. They're just waiting for someone better to come along. Now, there are exceptions to all this, and so don't get mad at me just yet. The reason I advocate courtship, although it sounds like some archaic medieval ritual in which you have to get married to Sir Lancelot, the reason I advocate courtship is because of this. Modern Christian version of courtship allows friendship of holiness... Grounded in Christ. A friendship of holiness grounded in Christ. That becomes the basis of our future marriage. You see, if you're interested in someone, as a believer, you should know that you need to get to know that person without compromising one another. So you get to know them as a friend would. It's not about being creepy and Facebook stalking them. It's about pursuing what's casual and non-intimate. This means not taking them out on a one-on-one date, but getting to know them through church settings, group settings, through church retreats, through life groups, through mission bazaars like we had yesterday, through the plethora of opportunities that exist to befriend someone, and all that does not require intimacy. And while you may be interested in them, your actions will lift up holiness rather than worldliness, as in you'll be praying during this time. You'll guard your heart. You'll guard their heart so you don't say or do anything that would mislead, manipulate, or entice them in any way. And when you're ready, after you prayed, after you're taking some time, after you gathered the knowledge of who they are, you know their character, you know their interests, you know their passions, you know their intellect, you know their family background, you know their past, you know their hopes and their ambitions. Then, after all that, sure, you can approach them. But remember, this isn't done on a whim. Lord, I know, I know, I've had too many conversations that have come out of retreats or worship settings where in particular, a brother will say, Pastor David, I think she's the one. And I'll say, "Uh uh-huh, and how is that? And they'll say, because, Pastor David, I was just drawn to the way she worships. And so I would smack them on their head and say, hey, brother, you better stop checking out the outline of your sister's body when they worship. And they'll say, no, 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 Pastor David, it's not like that. It's that I could see myself with her because of her worship. Like, her worship was so pure. Her worship was so beautiful. And by the way, these are actual things that my ears have been subjected to. And then, the worship is pure. The worship is so good. And then I'll smack them across the head again, and I'll say, hey, stupid, Everyone was worshiping. Everyone had their arms raised up. Everyone was crying. Everyone was dancing. Everyone was swaying and singing and clapping. Were you checking out my worship too? Huh? Was my worship beautiful too? Did you appreciate my silhouette as well? Did you like the way my body moved and swayed with the music? It's all lust. Like seriously, let's let's, let's stop trying to deceive ourselves and call it holiness. Holiness. It's not. It's worldliness. It's, it's hurting the church, and it's hurting the people of the church. Courtship. Here's the reason why so many people don't want to even approach it. Because it takes time. It takes time. It's disciplined. It's so anti-world. It's anti-feel-good culture. It's prayerful. It's thoughtful. It's caring. It's protective. It's wise. It's counseled. It's accountable. It's guided. It's pastored. Jacob, he thought he was in a rush. So he just swooped in. There's no record of him taking time to pray. He's dependent on his feelings when he saw Rachel. Instead of trying to find out qualities of hospitality and if she had a servant heart, if she feared the Lord, Jacob set out to woo her instead by impressing her. So he single-handedly, somehow, I don't know how this is done, he single-handedly moved the rock from the well that the three shepherds couldn't even budge themselves, and then he watered the flock. You ladies don't even know it, but guys sometimes get stronger when there's a woman they're trying to impress. I remember when Grace and I, were in our first year of marriage, she lived down on Virginia Beach, and she had to move her washing machine from an apartment to another apartment that we were moving into. Now, if it was another dude and they needed help, I'd say, okay, get the front. I'll get the back. But when Grace said, hey, can you move this to the, to the living room? I said, sure. I lifted. I, I'm not lying. <laughs> I lifted that baby like it was a carton of milk, and I carried it like as if I was Magnus from Strongest World's Strongest Man competition. Jacob was driven by his passionate desire for this beautiful girl. He rolled away this boulder. He was lustruck. struck He probably could have done anything for her at that moment, and yet the most important thing that he needed to do, he did not do. Jacob didn't even bother to ask God anything about her or the situation. How horrible is that? How foolish is that? And that's what we do too, Folks. We go with our feelings, don't we? We follow our hearts. Folks, next time someone has a question for you regarding a relationship that they're interested in, instead of saying sappy things like, yeah, follow your heart. Do what feels good. Instead, I dare you. I challenge you to say, you know what? I want to try asking God about it. Or have you ever, did you seek after God's heart? Or what plans do you think God, you know, scrap that girl or scrap that boy. What plans do you think God has for you right now that you need to submit to? We need more counsel like that. Amen? Amen? All right. Now let's look at verse 11. Jacob kissed Rachel and he began to weep aloud. Can everyone say LOL? Okay. It's not like he went over and he dipped her and he locked lips and everything it was just like amazing, romantic and stuff. Now most, more likely, he kissed her on both cheeks. He kisses her right then. He starts crying. It wasn't just crying like, "Oh, this is such a beautiful moment." He starts <laughs> weeping. He starts weeping. Not the best pickup strategy. Ladies, how would you feel after your first kiss and the dude starts weeping? Right, either you'd be really weirdly complimented, right? Or, most likely, you probably feel really awkward and lock the door behind you. So, why did Jacob cry? It's actually really sad. It's really sad why he cried. Jacob had been traveling for quite a while now, we know. You know what his previous life situation was? Right? He was fleeing, he was running away. Life was just a horrible mess. He was emotionally spent, he was physically exhausted, he was spiritually overwhelmed, and when he saw this beautiful woman, he saw Rachel, he saw what? He saw a promise. He saw hope. And sure, while he wept for joy, he did not praise God. He had thought that he had ended his journey because he is now at the right place, at the right time, and he is now with the right person. Oh, Lord, thank you for my salvation that is in her. How sad. A marriage with a guy or girl will not save you. It will not. It will challenge you even more. Don't base your entire life on the hopes of getting married, or if you are married, hoping that your marriage will suddenly become so heavenly, so glorious, so easy, and so comfortable. Instead, God is saying there is a time that is right now in your life. As a single, or as someone who is already in a relationship, or someone who is married, he's saying this time that you have is valuable. Married or not, it is so important for you to start drawing closer in your marriage Christ, because it's through this marriage and only through this marriage with Christ that you are saved, that you are saved, that you are fully loved, that you are completely protected, that you are radically transformed and totally satisfied, totally satisfied. No woman, no man, no marriage, no relationship, no courtship, nothing can ever do for you what Christ can do for you. And what do we do? In vain, desperate. We steal, we seek out for these people. Jacob, he tried to foolishly work out God's plan without even once referencing God Himself. Oh, foolishness. But we all know that despite his foolishness, God in his grace, he gives Rachel to be his wife. One of the great love stories of scripture. But God also prospers him by giving him 12 sons, and these 12 become the head of the 12 tribes of Israel. But not only that, God blessed him with abundant wealth. Remember, when Jacob first came, he came with nothing, but now he'll be leaving with flocks. He'll be leaving with herds. And after all that, God eventually brings him back to Bethel just as God promised. You see, even though Jacob never once mentioned God's name, God never left his throne. God is sovereignly in charge, and he's perfectly working out his plan according to his amazing design. He is doing that in your life. You may not have uttered his name in a while, you may not have gone and sought after the Lord through Scripture today or the past week or the past month or the past year. Maybe your devotion is non-existent, but you know what? If you, if you are saved, if you are a child of God, God He is working in your life somehow by His grace. You see, our God... He, is not thwarted by our disobedience. God is not at the mercy of our ability or availability. God is not the victim of our wickedness. No one and nothing can defeat who God is, and God is certainly not limited by the weakness and the foolishness of his own people. So praise God that he is still at work in your life, amen? He is still at work despite our foolishness. And my second last point is this. You reap what you sow. Turn to your neighbor and say, you reap what you sow. So, we begin to see this develop in our story when Jacob meets Laban. Laban is the worst kind of people user. He's a a wicked guy. Remember when Abraham's servant arrived back in chapter 24? Why did Laban get all excited that his sister could potentially become this wife of of, of Isaac? It's because the moment he saw these gold bracelets given to Rebekah, that caught his attention, you see. This guy, he's, he's he's not the best. In this story, Laban, he sees Jacob as really a worker. I mean, the Hebrew word used in this entire section is the word, uh, um, is the word abad, or serve. So Laban, he's running a farm, and there's a lot of work to be done. Has anyone here ever been to a farm? I have. Even as a young kid, I hated visiting farms on field trips. They constantly would send us to, to these farms during field trips. They would put us to work. It's through these field trip encounters that I would have to learn how to milk a cow. I probably milked over a dozen cows. I would pick up hay, shovel some ditches, milk, mill my own corn, and worst of all, I was forced to pay for my own experience. I'm like, how is this a field trip? This is child labor. Regardless, it takes a lot to operate a farm. So here comes this strapping young man named Jacob, and he's got an eye for his daughter. Interestingly, even though Laban calls Jacob, you're my flesh and my blood, he certainly doesn't welcome into the family as such. Instead, he uses Jacob, not as family, not as someone he adores. No, no, no. He sees him as a servant, a commodity. You see, Laban's an opportunist. He's thinking, how can I extract the most out of this guy? Why? Because that's who Laban is. Laban was someone who's also using his own daughters. He was oblivious to the fact that they had feelings because, after all, these two girls of his, they were just pawns to be used for his gain. But before we label Laban as a horrible person, there's something going on here. There's poetic justice, or really a reaping of what was sown. To whom you ask? To Jacob. Why? Because this is exactly how Jacob treated everyone else. This is how Jacob treated everyone else. Jacob used his brother Esau, then he used his father Isaac, and now Jacob is being used by Laban. You, you will reap what you sow. And so the climax of the story is the fact that the swindler Jacob is now getting swindled. Jacob, remember, he exchanges two brothers and tricks his Tricks his father. Laban exchanges two sisters and tricks Jacob. Jacob dresses up in Esau's clothes to steal his vows of blessing. Laban dresses Leah up in Rachel's clothes to steal his wedding vows. Jacob fools a blind man and foils his intentions. Laban fools a man blinded by his wedding veil and darkness to foil his intentions. Jacob violated the rule of the firstborn to get what he wanted. Laban used the rule of the firstborn born and violates jacob to get what he wanted and so god he lets jacob learn to feel of the pain that he caused his family the pain that he caused his brother his father because you will reap what you sow now why does god allow us to do things that he know he knows will destroy us later that will hurt us that will affect us later why doesn't god in His grace, stop the consequences of our foolishness. If He can forgive us, He can certainly cancel out the effects of our sins. So why won't He? And here's the truth. God, He does stop us from going so far. He certainly does stop us from going as far as we would have. And He does limit the effects of our failures. You see, brothers and sisters, even the pain that you are feeling right now today... The family issues that you have, the financial debts and crisis that you're in, all these circumstances, all these stuff, whether it's due to your poor decision or the poor decisions of your spouse or your children or your mom and dad, all this foolishness, get this, even this pain is still better than what we deserve. Because it could be a lot worse. But not only that, From Galatians chapter 6, Matthew 7, Deuteronomy chapter 5, all these passages state the biblical rule that in life we will reap what we sow. So folks, hear me out. If you fill your minds with garbage, garbage will come out of your heart and your mouth. If you fantasize about sin, you will eventually begin to practice your fantasies. If you engage in illicit sexual relationship, you will face pregnancy, sexually transmitted diseases, abortion, and overwhelming guilt. If you fill your heart with coveting, you will become discontented and be tempted to steal or maybe even pursue wealth and materialism all in the wrong way. If you harbor bitterness and give room for your anger to grow, you you will leave behind your path of destruction. Destroying your relationships and eventually destroying yourself. If you live in rebellion against God, you will one day raise rebellious children too. You will reap what you sow. The aim of God is to whittle and sand you down, as one pastor put it, until it conforms us perfectly into his image of the Son. See, you may be smart. You may be Successful, clever, cunning. Maybe you're not threatened by people around you. Maybe you built up such a high wall that you're impervious to the criticism and remarks of people around you. But you know what? You will be humbled one day. You will be humbled. Jacob got away with a lot of things, a lot of things. He eventually fled Esau. He got his girl. He got his money. He got what he thought he needed. But you know what? Even though no one really got the best of him, Jacob was eventually schooled by God himself. Because you can't run away from God. You can't run away from God. You can run away from people. You can run away from your family, from your responsibilities. But you can't run away from God. Because you see, in God's school, you will be humbled. If you're taking a step in the wrong direction, and that step will lead to, another, uh, lead to another, God, he says, stop right there. I call you to repentance. Repentance isn't some emotional kind of moment of contrition. It is an act of turning around saying, I got to stop going away from God and start going towards him. Any further footstep you take away from God will only make what you reap that much greater and that much more harder. You see, the biblical rule of reaping what you sow isn't a joke because God, he means what he says. The truth is, all have disobeyed God. In fact, even after church, after the songs that we sing and the fellowship that we have downstairs, perhaps, perhaps some of you guys will go back. Will go back home. You'll do things that were totally against God and his word. Maybe you'll go home tonight and you'll get drunk. Maybe you'll engage with sex other than someone, than your spouse. Maybe you'll vent your anger at your wife and at your kids. Maybe you'll curse God. Maybe you'll curse the people around you because you gotta go, you have to go back to another week of work. You see, we're not as holy as we consider ourselves to be. We hate when we should love. We speak evil when we should speak life. We take when we should give. We shut up when we should speak up. We're fearful when we should be unashamedly sharing the gospel. You not a day passes by in our lives when we measure up to God's perfect standard. Which is why the Bible says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all fall short. We all have sinned. And that sin, well, the reaping of what we've sown is death. For the wages of sin is death. But God, he sent his son Jesus. Can you say Jesus. He sent his son Jesus into the world to bear the curse of our sin. Jesus came to give his life as a ransom, his life for ours. And that's exactly what he did up on that cross. The Bible says, he who knew no sin became sin for us. Say hallelujah. The rule is we must reap what we sow. We deserve death. That's the rule. But Jesus, he paid it all on the cross. He died our death. We received his life. What rule is that then? If, if we're supposed to reap what we sow, and as sinners, the wages of sin is death, but Christ, He has taken our death and instead giving us life, giving us life, then what rule is that? What new rule is that? It is not a rule, it is a gift, the gift of God's grace. In Christ, we are no longer condemned, but in Christ we are now righteous. See, now God, he's not just in the business of saving our souls. No, he intends to also completely conform us to the righteousness and the goodness of his son, Jesus. And so to be refined, turn to Him and say, be refined. refined. To be refined means to be what? Put through the test, the test of fire. So this life that you live is is really about God's holiness. And the same rule that is applied to everyone else is also applied to us too. You reap what you sow, but here's the difference. This is how I end. You reap what you sow. Here's the difference between the rest of the world and those who are in Christ. We will both reap what we sow, but the difference is that rule that was once used to condemn us is now used to refine us. Does that make sense? To those who are outside of Christ, it condemns them. For the wages of sin is death, but those who are in Christ, and no longer condemns us, for Christ was already condemned for us. And you see, what happens to us is that it now refines us. Praise God that in his mercy and grace, he still works in us despite our foolishness. But we also praise him And that though we will reap what we sow, that in Christ we are not condemned, but saved. We are not hated, but loved. We are not cast out, but disciplined. For just as Proverbs chapter 3 and Hebrews chapter 12 points out about the children of God, it says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes everyone he accepts as his son. And that is all. My friends, not the law of reaping what you sow, but the law of grace. Hallelujah. All because of Christ. You and I are being refined today. Amen? Let's pray. Let's make this real as we close our eyes and take this time to pray. Maybe there is a prayer that you've been praying for the past few days, few weeks, maybe a few months. Something that's been hurting you, something that's been... Really impacting you in such a way where you feel pain, you feel hopeless, you feel like you're just in turmoil. The question you have to ask yourself is this Do you know Christ? Is he the shepherd of your soul? Is he the one who you trust completely as one who died for your sins and rose again to give you life through his sacrifice, allowed you? from become become foe to friend, from sinner to saint. You see, is Christ your Lord and Savior? If so, then know that the issues, the difficulties that you face today, that you are in the school of God's holiness. And God, he's working in you. And it is not to condemn you. It is not to make you miserable. It's not to make your life worse. It is to sanctify you. If Christ is your Lord, you say, God, he's doing this thing. He doesn't just save you and leave you at that. He's in the business of transforming you and conforming you. So it's about how are you responding to these challenges? Is it forcing you to run away from the difficulties and abandoning God and his grace? Or is it causing you to run towards him and say, Lord, I need more of you. I can't do this without you. And if that is your response, then you will see. Christ, you will see God's presence become a greater, more glorious reality in your life. For you are becoming more like His Son, Jesus. So, as we respond to the sermon that you just heard, let's take a moment and pray that. Search your hearts. Say, God, this is what I'm dealing with right now. It truly is difficult. And I feel like I'm being abandoned I feel like your name is not being uttered once but know that God is working and if you are in Christ God is definitely working just surrender to him only God will be glorified not you So if you feel that you need to keep your head up high and say, God, I am fine, but know this, in his school, he will humble you. He will make you know that God is God and you are not. Let's pray.